Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKenty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKenty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon, or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on March 10th, 2021. My guest on the show today is author and political activist Clyde Cleveland. Clyde is the author of Restoring the Heart of America and the extended pamphlet Common Sense Revisited. He ran for the governorship of Iowa in 2002 under the Libertarian ticket and has remained active in libertarian political activism ever since. Over the past year, Clyde is engaged in organizing political pushback against unconstitutional COVID lockdown policies across the United States and is now embarking on a new project, Organizing Speaking Summits through 360summits.org, that bring together dozens of like-minded speakers in order to continue to spread the word about humanity's potential to live and thrive in a world composed of radically decentralized power structures. Our conversation today concerns the philosophy of political philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville, the author of Democracy in America, and we will discuss the little-known history of a pre-revolutionary movement in the United States known as the Assembly. While many of us are taught about the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the creation of the Constitution, few understand the radically decentralizing philosophy of the Assembly groups formed throughout the colonies township by township. Power was focused at the city level where each member of a local assembly had a say in determining the political future of the town. While there was communication between assemblies, no assembly was required to follow the lead of another. This horizontal power structure allowed each city autonomy, while creating a unifying communication network that allowed multiple assemblies to work together when the need arose. This early form of decentralized government in the U.S. colonies ran a successful embargo against British trade that reduced overall trade by 93% and nearly eliminated the slave trade altogether. Only after the Concord and Lexington massacres was the public riled up into allowing a standing army and the process of centralization of power into the hands of a single federal government began. Stay tuned for this conversation as Clyde and I discuss these decentralized beginnings and then lay out how, bit by bit, the forces of centralization of power worked behind the scenes until a constitution was drafted creating a federal system that many at the time presciently understood would lead to a hierarchical system with power consolidated in the hands of a few. Find out more about the work of Clyde Cleveland at www.commonsenserevisited.com. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this interview throughout your social media network. We rely on listeners like you to help spread the word. You can find out more about The Shift, including hours of free content and other podcasts I have produced and hosted at www.theshiftnow.com. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly updates about The Shift and other programs as they are distributed. 
Enjoy this conversation between myself and Clyde Cleveland, and I want to thank Clyde for agreeing to this discussion, and thank you for helping to make the shift. And hello, everyone, and welcome to this. This is the 72nd episode of The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKinty. I'm joined today by Clyde Cleveland. I had him on the show uh, not too long ago, I guess a few months ago, uh, where we were discussing the whole uh, COVID crisis and and how uh, our society could or should be dealing with that, empowering local communities and local sheriffs, I think was a, a big part of our conversation for that one. Uh, but today, we're going to dive deep into some of the history of uh, colonial America and how the governments and the Constitution, what events transpired to to uh, get us to the Constitution, uh, some comments from uh, a political philosopher named Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who wrote a book, Democracy in America, I think somewhere around 1812, describing what was going on during that early period. Uh, and then we can relate some of that back to uh, what's going on today, how the government has grown, where things went wrong. So thanks for coming on the show, Clyde, and welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I love talking about this stuff. So it's, it's not work for me. It's, it's a joy to be able to share this with people. Well, people it is. People are interested in it. You know, it's just... Uh, it's wonderful. It's right. Wonderful. It's sad how much of this history is lost. There's not a lot of people that really delve into it. Our politics are based on a lot of the ideas from this time period, and yet so few people really even understand it. We're all caught up now in Republican versus Democrat and all these different wedge issues that come up, and we don't really talk very much about uh, some of the founding principles and some of the ideas of really living in a free society where adults are allowed to make choices for themselves. We don't always have to ask the government for permission for what we're going to do. <laughs> and so it's great to get back into this history and, and really delve into uh, these ideas that were being bounced around um, back in the day, because I think they're even more relevant today than ever before, as we're seeing more and more government uh, taking more and more powers, the, these surveillance powers, certainly the lockdowns, something that, um, people in the 18th century could have never even imagined uh, the power that the governments and the corporations have now um, because people aren't standing up for these boundaries that were laid laid out pretty clear uh, back in the day when people were trying to fight against the um, you know the feudal lords the kings and queens of the time and trying to set some boundaries and say hey you you know just because you call yourself a, a king or a government doesn't mean that you can boss us around <laughs> right right. Well, it, it's really our country has had an amazing, amazing history. And you know, people have to realize that when you go back to the people that came here from mostly from European countries, uh, mostly from England uh, and Scotland and Ireland and then Germany and other in France and you know, different parts of, the, of Europe, mostly, they were coming here to escape the Inquisition. Mm. You know, they, they the Inquisition was the most brutal, just absolutely brutal, violent era in human history. Um, you know, the, the, the Vatican ruled all the European countries during that whole, like, three, four hundred year period with an iron fist. And people had no freedom. I mean, they were lived in fear of the Inquisition, of the Inquisition and the torture chambers. That they set up, and um, you know, no one was immune from it. Uh, so people were coming here to escape that, and they were escape one kind of tyranny or another to come to America and live free. And 
you know, life was rough for people, but they did have freedom. And as the thing went from the things went from the 1600s to 1700s, in the 1700s, um, people lived in a free way, and they were very self-sufficient. Uh, most of them had land, or they were merchants, or they're shopkeepers, and um, they they lived without a, a very heavy hand from England for a long time. And that's why, when in the 1760s, uh, the different uh, stamp acts and the uh, you know the different policies that England was uh, clamping on to the colonists, they were not happy. They were not happy at all because they had not been really under the under the heel, feeling the boot, you know, of the English on their necks uh, like they started to in that time. And so um, they were used to being self-governing and they were pretty much self-governing. And, you know, the, the British governors of the different colonies, um, they, didn't, they didn't really have to do much. You know, everybody was prospering. It was when the uh, Bank of England started to need money from the colonists that they started to lay their ta- these taxes mm. that things started to go bad for them. And that's when people started to fight back. Now, what people don't know, there's a couple things that most people don't even know. And the first constitution, many people consider this the first constitution, was the association. In late 1774, uh, you know, this, it, by, by 1774, you know, the, the, uh, the Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party was already, uh, had happened a couple of years before that. So things were getting hot. Things were getting, you know, a lot more and more people were talking about revolting from England uh, by the late 1774. So what happened was the colonies decided to have a Continental Congress in late 1774 and see if they could come up with a plan to try to get England to the bargaining table. And they decided they came up with a plan called the association and they created a document called the association and all 13 colonies were represented there and the delegates on October 20th of 1774 signed the association. Now the association did two things. One, it created a plan to have an embargo on all British shipping that would bring England's economy to nothing because their biggest export customer uh, was was the colonies, was the 13 colonies. And so they knew that if they could if they could implement an effective embargo, and they, by the way, had tried embargoes before, but they were only partially successful. So this time they decided, okay, let's do this in such a way that it's going to work. And their goal was to bring the shipping down to 5% of what it was. That was their goal. And they figured if they could bring it down to 5 or 10%, that would hurt the English economy so badly that they would come to the bargaining table. We wouldn't have to, you know, have a hot hmm. war. You, so. you know, Clyde, before we get too deep into it, will you just um, give yourself a quick introduction about your history, a little bit about Common Sense Revisited so that 
that uh, my Absolutely. audience will have some awareness. And then I want to have a quick conversation before we, we get into the real meat of this as well. Okay, good, good. Go ahead and good. introduce yourself. And Yep, yep. So uh, Clyde Cleveland, I've been a uh, patriot movement type person for most of my life. Uh, in uh, 2002, I ran for governor of Iowa as a libertarian. I wrote this book here called Restoring the Heart of America, A Return to Government by the People. And then uh, in 2007, I wrote Common Sense Revisited, which was my what I thought Thomas Paine would say to the country if he was alive today. Uh, so it's like an updated version of Common Sense. So I've been into that, and then I was very much involved with the Republic, Restore the Republic movement that Tim Turner started in 2010, 2011. And now I'm active with uh, Judge Anna Von Reitz's uh, state eight assemblies. She has 50 state assemblies now up and running where people get out of the maritime law and out of the land or the sea admiralty jurisdiction and to the land jurisdiction by becoming, getting rid of their U.S. citizenship. Very active in that right now. And, uh, and I've been very active during the pandemic. I uh, really called, should be called a scamdemic. Uh, we're trying to help business owners open up their businesses, uh, you know, trying to help people that don't want to wear masks, not wear masks, fight the, all these different mandates and restrictions and uh, rules and regulations that are illegal, unconstitutional. Uh, so we've been putting on forums for that all over the country for the last year. So um, I've pretty much uh, retired from my financial services industry job and companies and um, working on this full time. All right, cool. And then um, I also have a couple of interviews with Clyde that I'll post in the notes below so that if you want to get more of a background on him, you can check those out. Um, but before we have this conversation, I do want to just have a, a, a discussion with you about, of course, um, many people now, when we're talking about this philosophy and this history are going to bring up that, that there uh, not only were a, a lot of the population enslaved at the time, but then of course the genocide of the indigenous people that happened uh, over the course of the, the next uh, hundred years and a little bit more after, uh, after the constitution was developed. So how do you react to people who bring up those two points in terms of the talking about this history and talking about this philosophy? Well, um, most of the founder, a lot of the founders were slave owners. They inherited slaves. Um, but, uh, you know, if you look at, I've read at least five biographies of Jefferson, for example, and dug deeply into Jefferson's uh, work. And in just about every case, if you look at the notes of the meetings that he was in, in Virginia, uh, and in the Declaration of Independence, and, mm -hmm. you know that, that Congress and everything, he's always he was always working uh, to free the slaves as quickly as possible. Uh, he knew that slavery was totally opposed to the philosophy of the government that they were creating and that they want the kind of, kind of country that they want to create. And I'd say that goes for most of them. Same with George Mason. Again, those those. Families, Jefferson, Washington, uh, George Mason, uh, they, they're families that had slaves for generations. And uh, so they, they grew up in that. It was an institution that they grew up in. 
and that they knew had to end and had to come to an end at some point. Uh, the main reason they didn't end it at the very first Congress was because they needed the South um, to defeat the English. They had to be, they knew that they had to be united, you know, so they kept making compromises on slavery. Uh, I believe that eventually without the Civil War, slavery was on its way out anyway. Um, you know, it's a horrible institution, but our founders did not create it. Um, the British brought the slaves and created the plantations. So, you know, it's uh, the colonies and the colonists were a different mindset than the British overlords and that, you know, were the, the owners of these huge corporations that were started by the king, by the crown. And these people that brought over and started these huge plantations were British for the most point, and they brought the slaves with them. So, um, you know, it, that's a good part of history. The best book people can read on this, though, is Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. If you read that book, you will really find the true history of slavery, not only in this country, but the whole world. It's an amazing book. Thomas Sowell is one of my favorite authors, but I highly recommend that book. But what I was talking about before, the, uh, the association proves that there was a strong, in 1774, there was a strong inclination to start taking serious steps to get rid of slavery. So here's, let's go back up now to the association. Now we're in October of 1774. Mm -hmm. All 13 colonies had people there representing their, their colony. And they did two things with the association. Number one was they created an embargo and they created a plan for an embargo. I want to come back to that in a second. The second thing they did was they created a, a, an agreement that they all signed, that all 13 colonies signed, that under the association, it would bring an end to the importation of slaves into the colonies. How many people know that? Not one out of a thousand Americans know that that happened in 1774. Mm -hmm. And guess what? That was enforced from the moment that was signed by the colonies. All the different uh, ports in the 13 colonies stopped allowing slaves to be imported. So how many people know that? Did you know that? No, no. Yeah. yeah. So so that's what the association did. It did two things. It stopped the importation of slaves into the country. So that's a pretty good sign to you, friends, who bring this up. Let them know that in October of 1774, the 13 colonies agreed to stop the importation of slaves. Now, they didn't end slavery, but at least they stopped importing new slaves. That's a big step. So that proves that there was a strong current among them. And, and look, Benjamin Franklin, all the Quakers were totally against slavery. You know, Benjamin Franklin had huge influence. And, you know, so it was going to happen. Eventually. Um, and, and they certainly, you know, most of them did not want it. The only reason they had to do it was because to fight England, they needed all 13 colonies. And of course, the southern colonies were, you know, they depended on slavery for their livelihoods. So, right. uh, you know, unfortunately, 
I, I find a lot of a lot of the conversations surrounding this these days um, really throws the baby out with the bathwater because they see that uh, the United States government certainly made horrendous decisions in those early days, and uh, you know, including the treatment of the Native Americans. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because the Benjamin Franklin uh, learned a lot from the Iroquois. The Iroquois had a very advanced civilization. It was a bottom-up civilization, and they had a lot to do with what the founders wanted to do in terms of bottom-up. In other words, having pushing the power and the authority of the organizational structure to the furthest limits of the organization. In the Iroquois, it was the families and the tribes, and a group. Each each tribe was just a group of a few families, and they were self-sufficient. Within that within that group of families, right. it was very similar to what the Anglo-Saxons in the Israelis under Moses had, which was the the fam, the ten family unit. Every ten families was a self-governing government within the ten families, and they elected one leader who was really like an arbitrator or judge advocate uh, for the ten families, and then they had five groups of ten families. So it was a bottom-up structure. So there was, uh, in fact. Jefferson and Adams and Franklin had presented a coin. Yeah, so anyway, they, they had presented as, a, as to be the coin that, uh, or the symbol of uh, the Anglo-Saxon king and uh, you know, two of their leaders on either side of the coin. So in other words, they were all understanding this concept of bottom-up government, you know, keeping the centralized government and any central power from being gained too much power mm-hmm. over people. They want to be the people who be self-sufficient. So this, let's talk about the association because this is amazing. Okay. So number one was let's, to stop the importation of well, I yeah. just want to I just want to I just want to make that point that there was because ultimately I think what in my interpretation of this history uh, there were people that were arguing for the individual rights and they were arguing for uh, community rights. Uh, and the idea of federalism, and they were working with the indigenous people, and they were against slavery at the time. And and what's really unfortunate, the people, those people did not win these arguments at the time, right? The forces of imperialism ultimately took control. Uh, and then we do see uh, slavery continuing for another 50, 60, 70 years. And we see the, the, uh, the stealing of the land from the indigenous people and the genocide that ensued. Um, but not as a result of the, these philosophies. Like these people actually lost the argument, unfortunately, and that's where the disaster happened. We always, we've always had, ever since the beginning, we've had centralizers and decentralizers. Yeah, and that's the way it's always going to be. That's the way it is now. And the decentralizers want people to be free. They want self-government, and they understand that that's what creates pr- prosperity. And the centralizers want to control everything. And we're always going to have human beings are get addicted to power. It's just an unfortunate thing. I mean, we have free will. That's a great thing. But we also can use our free will in such a way that uh, we, we, gain, we want to gain more power. And power is like a drug. And the founders knew this. Um, and so because it's been that way throughout history. You have centralizers and decentralizers. Right. We have that now. So that's what it, you're exactly right. The reason the Indians 
uh, in the Indians, the Native Americans, uh, were treated so poorly is the centralizers wanted to expand and make it more more powerful. You know, the French treated treated the Native Americans much differently. Mm-hmm. They treated them much better, mm-hmm. and they worked with them, and they kind of you know lived together in harmony with them much better than we did. And I think Canadians in general uh, weren't quite as brutal as we were. Right. But well, and so that's, and that's just now having that framing, we can look at, at this, the association, this initial attempt at creating government in the United States. And we can see that these were the very liberal, very liberal. uh, This was a very liberal perspective, a classically liberal perspective at the time. And they, they were uh, trying to decentralize power and they were trying to take steps towards abolishing slavery uh, and then, uh, so just to have that in mind as we discuss and go through the history from the association to the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution, and the centralization continues, you know, from there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I think really where we need to go get back to is somewhere between the association and the Articles of Association. And there's a mm-hmm. one or two good clauses in the Constitution that I would throw in there as well. But that's about it. Um, because we gave, in 1789, we gave the central government way too much power. George Mason knew it. George Mason is my favorite founder by far. He was, he was the most prescient, and uh, he, he knew exactly what was going to happen. And that's why, when, and he, was, he did everything he could to make that document work. He was at the convention. Patrick Henry, would, Patrick Henry was in the same vein, but he wouldn't go because he knew it was, what it was going to happen. And... None of them signed it. Sam Adams didn't sign it. Henry didn't sign it. Richard Henry Lee did not sign it. George Mason didn't sign it. And uh, many others. Those were the anti-federalists. Mm-hmm. That's where I would have been if I would have been alive. Yeah. But, you know, they, they, these people were amazing. And uh, so anyway, we ended up with what we got. But let's go back to the association, the two things, again, because this is really amazing history. So... Seven, October 20th, 1774, that document was signed. And what they realized is, okay, they had a conundrum. Okay, how do we enforce an embargo? You know, we, we don't have a centralized government. We don't want to force people in a certain way of doing this. And they came up with a beautiful plan, which should have been the blueprint for America to this day. And that was, we'll let every community decide how to enforce it themselves. Right. Yeah. Every community. Here's what we want you to do, folks. We want you to create your own association in your own community, in your own town, in your own village. And on a village by village, city by city basis, you decide how you're going to enforce the embargo. And what you what we want is you want to get the group coherence of the community together and do it in such a way that everyone gets on board and realizes that if we can bring shipping down to say 5% or less of what it is now, England will be on its knees to come to the table to talk to us about our grievances. Mm-hmm. And so this is what they laid out. That's how they laid it out. And so every community on their own decided whether they were going to have three people on the association or 30 people or 300 people. And you know what? There was there were towns that had three, and there were towns that three, had three hundred. Right, and they and they all figured it out within their own community. And when 
when somebody in the town was buying British goods, they'd get a visit from the association and, you know, members, and they would discuss it with them. And usually that was enough. If they still didn't comply, the next day, there would be more than a half a dozen people or a dozen people. There'd be two or 300 people outside their home with a different attitude and a little bit more, you know, teeth to what they were trying, the message. They look, look, if you want to be in this community and live with us, we don't want our kids to be killed in a war, in a bloody war. Work with us. And that usually did it 99% of the time. That would have been about as bad as it would get. You know, it, there are some, some, a few situations where it got beyond that. But in general, throughout the colonies, from everything I've researched on this, it was done in a nonviolent way. A nonviolent way. They did it without violence. In the worst cases, they shunned the person and the person would leave because nobody could live, could live at that time. Mm -hmm. If the people in the community weren't communicating with them, they would just leave. But that happened very, very rarely. So that all that history, I can't go any more now. We'll spend too much time. But I do want to mention this book. It's called American Insurgents, American Patriots by uh, Breen, B-R-E-E-N, who's a Northwestern University professor. And I... Love that book. I've read it three, four times. I refer to it all the time. That was an amazing book. So that's the association. And many people consider, and I'll just give you uh, uh, one of Breen's uh, uh, quotes. The association effectively became a working constitution, a revolutionary framework in which a central governing body interacted productively with local units. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay. What's, what's funny to me is that uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with these guys, but now there's a, a community rights movement. Uh, I in, did an interview with a guy named Paul Cienfuegos, uh, and to I know him day, well. To, to this day, right? And he's considered, you know, left wing on the spectrum. But a lot of the this is a this point about decentralization goes beyond the left right paradigm because in order to fight the current super powerful centralized government systems, but also the corporate systems that have centralized power, yeah. you know, yeah. the answer continues to be local control. <laughs> right. Paul and I have spent hours and hours and hours debating all these things. Great. And, and, you know, we get along great, you know, he still considers himself a leftist, but really he's a decentralized. Yeah. And these days that's just the opposite of the left. The, the left has become totally centralizing and that's their orientation now. So it's very interesting, uh, but he's a great guy. So anyway, let me, let me read you what happened next. So the boycott of British goods within one year brought shipping from England from 3 million pounds to 220,000 pounds. So wow. it, it dropped it to about 7% of what it was. So the Congress laid out the goals and the broad framework for the association but each community decided how their association would be structured, how it would operate, and how it would enforce the association's goals. Now, if that is not an example of a true Republican form of government, of self-government, I don't know what. The guys got together at the center from each colony. They created this amazing association, which they already signed, 
or which they all signed, and which ended the importation of slavery and brought British goods, British, British shipping to practically, uh, a, you know, nothing. Right. So it accomplished it. Now, okay, so why did we have a war? Well, about the time that we realized that the association was working in the spring of 1775, guess what happened? Huh. Spring of 1775, Lexington and Concord. Right. Shots were fired, people were killed, blood was drawn, and then what, what happened is the, the, those, the whole message and the whole uh, influence of the association got lost in the, you know, the furor of war fever. You know, you know what this brings up to my mind, as the founding fathers wrote about quite a bit, is, um, and I've even had a lot of thoughts about uh, implementing this today, but just the fear of having a standing army in general. Um, and so once you even amass that standing army for the revolutionary war, all of a sudden you've got this incredible centralizing power, got to have the power to tax, got to be able to feed the army, got to keep the army going. And I've even wondered, I mean, today, wouldn't it be better to have a, a, a self-defense mechanism that was organized on a local level? If, if people in each community just trained how to protect their own community, we wouldn't need a standing army today. Not at all. Ironically, I mean, the, the American empire has been defeated in Vietnam, yeah. ostensibly in Iraq and Afghanistan now by just such a such a decentralized fighting force so you, we why don't, why don't we learn why don't we learn the lesson that Sw the swiss learned hundreds and hundreds of years ago and 600 years they haven't been in a war right they are armed and nobody wants to mess with the swiss because they know every every single i think it's men and women at 18 do a couple of years of training in the military yeah and all of their all those firearms and they're mostly sniper rifles, are in the homes of every Swiss family. Now, who in the world, in their right mind, would want to attack a country like that? Right. And we have that here. We, we could have that here, and we should have that here. And uh, we wouldn't need a standing army. Yeah. We still need a navy, but we wouldn't need an army. And uh, we could reduce our military spends. Our defense budget is as much as the next seven or eight countries combined. Unreal. China, most people don't realize this. China only spends 32% of what we spend on defense. You know, and then the next country, you'll never guess what the next one is. Nobody ever gets this. You know what the next country I, is? I thought Russia was number three. Is that not true? Not even, not even close. Hmm. You take another guess? Uh, I don't the only know. person that ever got it is my son, <laughs> Kyle. Oh yeah, Saudi Arabia. Oh no, kidding. Saudi Arabia is third. Wow. And a close, a close fourth is India. Okay. Then France, then Russia, then England. So France and England together spend twice as much as Russia spends on defense. Why in the world are we in NATO? Yeah. Think about that. And then if you add Italy and Germany. Uh, the, those four countries spend three times what Russia spends on defense. Uh, the media is constantly pushing the fear of Russia and war with Russia. They want to they go to war with Russia so bad. But Ru that's because it's a Christian nation. That's, it's a Christian nation, and Putin is totally against the New World Order. He's totally against the UN, 
and all of the world government and all that stuff. So, um, so that's why the left hates him. But yeah, they're six, okay? And, uh, and you know, they spend 12% of what we spend on Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think, I, I really think almost everybody in America realizes the amount that we're spending on defense is just absolutely absurd. And yet, right. you know, of course, the federal government's not going to do anything about that. All that pork belly is what makes the whole machine keep rolling. Exactly. Again, just going back to this history, yeah. why an organization like the association that kept that self-defense on a local level didn't allow for the standing army with the centralization that ultimately builds into the military industrial complex we have today. It's, it's pretty outrageous. So I really want to get this these points out here. You mentioned Tocqueville. So let's get into this because this is amazing stuff. And it really drives the point home <laughs> about how we could transform America today by going back to these principles of creating assemblies and associations. So Tocqueville, you were a little bit off. It, it wasn't 1812. He came back and he came here for about 12 to 14 years, just going up and down the colonies and, and out into Tennessee and Kentucky, which were developing at that time, and uh, just studied America for 14 years. Uh -huh. By the way, he was a brilliant, brilliant man and uh, quite a scholar. He was Lafayette's, General Lafayette's nephew. Okay. Uh, and so he was came from a very wealthy family, had an incredible education. And uh, yeah, you read this book, Democracy in America, and I believe that the title was changed somewhere along the, the line. I believe he wrote Republican America, because if anybody understood that uh, America was not a democracy, that it was a republic, it was Detokta. So I believe that got changed by some publisher somewhere along. Right, interesting. And I haven't been able to prove that yet. That I, I, I want to make that disclaimer, but I'm trying to. If anybody knows, let me know. I want to read you these three quotes because he said that the thing that impressed him most, and there's a lot of things he talks about, you can see how thick this book is, um, was that the way Americans got things done. They didn't look, they, the, the idea of going to government to do anything, to build a school, to build a hospital, to send missionaries to Africa, none of the, the, the thought would never enter their mind to ask government to do anything about that. It was, government was, what Tocqueville said was that it was like government was invisible because nobody talked about government. Not only did they not talk about the federal government or the state government, they didn't even talk about city government. But every single person he ran into was a member of at least seven or eight different organizations, civic groups, right. church groups, service organizations, all this stuff. So that's think, how they I think this is what people don't really understand about libertarianism. I had a, a friend and someone that I interviewed not too long ago uh, post something about, you know, how do libertarians, um, how, do they, how do they reconcile? It was a, how do they reconcile this sense of rugged individualism, you know, that she, in her view, led to colonialism and, and some of these negative aspects that we brought up. And and my reply was, I, I don't think that is a characteristic of libertarianism. I, I think it's just a, about being voluntary. It doesn't mean you don't, 
you're not community oriented, you know, <laughs> and the history. No one, this. no one understood the importance of working in a group like mm -hmm. the early Americans. Mm -hmm. They knew they couldn't get anything done without working together. So their very survival depended on helping each other with their crops, helping each other with uh, maintenance of law and order in their community, helping each other with everything. And, uh, building schools, building hospitals, building everything. And so mm. that's how they do it. The, the closest thing to it that we would know of today would be the Amish, you know, right. the Amish culture and people like that, you know, the Mennonites, and they still live like that. But anyway, he realized that the way people form associations was the key. And so he wrote a lot in his book is about associations. I'm going to read you three of my favorite quotes. Okay, this is Dakota Tocqueville. I have come across several types of association in America, of which I confess I had not previously the slightest conception. And I have often admired the extreme skill they show in proposing a common object for the exertions of very many and in, induce, and in inducing them voluntarily to pursue it. Amazing, amazing. So, um, then this the, the most democratic country in the world now is that in which men have in our time carried to the highest perfection the art of pursuing in common the objects of common desires and have applied this new technique to the greatest number of purposes. Is that just an accident or is there really some necessary connection between associations and equality? It's just amazing stuff here. Um, yeah. Now there, there's many of them, but um, this is another one of my favorites. As soon as several Americans have conceived a sentiment or an idea that they want to produce before the world, they seek each other out, and when found, they unite. Thenceforth, thenceforth, they are no longer isolated individuals, but a power conspicuous from a distance whose actions serve as, serve as an example when it speaks, men listen. So they perfected the art of associating voluntarily, as you said. Right. It's voluntarism. It's what the, a lot of libertarians now and anarchists are calling voluntarism. It's exactly what they did. And they did that before the Revolutionary War, and they did that after the Revolutionary War. It wasn't until after the Civil War that that started to decline, I believe, because the power of the central government became so much greater after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. and, and the Civil War really did a, hit a tremendous amount of destruction to the country in many ways. But, um, yeah. you know, that's how it was. Yeah, I just I just want to reiterate again because there's such this common misconception that that people who believe in a free market believe in this dog eat dog, you know, competitive capitalism. And that's just not the the real story at all. It's it's a fabrication and something that that uh, like I said a misconception that many many people have um because uh, you know, clearly you're reading these quotes uh, if we go back to this libertarian philosophy at the beginning of the country, uh, what we see are freedom of association, certainly, but all kinds of community associations, all kinds of collective action just being done on a voluntary basis, not being done by with the imposition of the force of the state. Well, 
if, if we're gonna if we're gonna change our country in a positive way, we have to learn the art of association mm-hmm. and and the art of creating groups, uh, effective groups. And I've been doing interviews on that for a long time, and I've been talking to people like uh, Bob Podolsky, who created a book called Flourish, which is about creating octologues, groups of eight, um, have, with a, a balance between female and male. You know, four women, four men. There's a lot of research on that that they uh-huh. did. He did with John David Garcia. So I will mention this other book, and that's Creative Transformation. I did. Uh, yeah, I did interview Derek Bros, uh, who his freedom selves are divided into groups of eight based on uh, Podolowski's work. So right, yeah, I'm glad to hear that because I worked with Bob for a long time. I have right. a website called flourishfairfield.org which really has a lot of background information for people and, and actually a link to, to creative transformation. That's a PDF on uh, the website on, on, on the internet for free. Uh, so flourishfairfield.org. Okay. I highly recommend you go to that and you'll see me and Foster Gamble both talking uh, about um, Bob's uh, octologues. Great. Last quote from Tocqueville. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cause this kind of sums it up. Among laws controlling human societies, there is one more precise and clearer, it seems to me, than all the others. If men are to remain civilized or to become civilized, the art of association must develop and improve among them at the same speed as equality of condition spreads. So to him, he was big on equality you know, equal opportunity and, and everything. Mm-hmm. And so he saw this uh, whole association thing being a way for people to create equal, you know, prosperity for everyone and everyone participate in that part, in that, uh, right. in that prosperity. So, you know, you and I were just talking earlier and it's really so important. Human beings, if they're allowed to associate in a freely together and you see this there's examples of this all over the world without the state or a tyrant interfering with their commerce they'll they'll trade with each other they'll help each other because it's to their mutual benefit to do so and when people freely trade without interference from government they're both profiting they wouldn't freely trade with each other unless they were both gaining something mm-hmm. and those little bitty gains add up to prosperity in a society. And, and what destroys it is government intervention uh, at all levels, taxation, uh, you know, all kinds of rules and regulations and laws and restrictions. All of that just diminishes the prosperity that people will have naturally if they're just allowed to associate and assemble on their own. Right. You, you know, maybe now is a good time to talk about another misconception, because so many people believe that in a free society, then again, this whole it's like a mythology around freedom that has developed that is just the opposite, actually, of the truth. I actually I've been doing a lot of this psychology work lately, so I think it's a, the centralizers project onto the decentralizers and they blame the decentralizers for what they're actually doing right in, in, in psychological speak. but 
but so many people think that in a free society, then there will just be a handful of people that rise to the top in this dog-eat-dog competitive world, and we'll have this huge amount of wealth inequality. Um, but what it's you're the opposite. About, it's just the opposite. Right. You're yeah. describing how you know little gains based right. on transactions of individuals, each benefiting mutually, uh, kind of across the board, uh, produces could produce this societal wealth. What are, what are the richest five counties in the world? Where are they? Hmm, I couldn't. I couldn't answer that question. Yeah, let me very know. simple. Think about it. Washington D.C. Right. Five counties around Washington D.C. This is where the money is. It's all about graft. It's all about you know, all these lobbyists and all the money is the money creation uh, machine is running full speed. And now more than ever, uh, one point nine trillion dollars. And all that money is going to be coming back to people who live in those five counties. Right. The lobbyists, the politicians, the attorneys, it's a money machine. And people know it that when they get elected to Congress now, look at Obama, you know, look at all these presidents, Clintons, Obamas, they've all become massively wealthy because of the power being in Washington, D.C. and doing the bidding of the, uh, the corporatism. So it's corporatism, uh, cor you know, you know, the first one to really talk about it was Eisenhower. And when his military industrial complex speech, which really was supposed to be military industrial congressional complex, but mm -hmm. they convinced him to take the word con con uh, congressional out. But now we have, look at this pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical, medical, um, CDC, regulatory, congressional lobbyist com complex yeah. that is literally running our country right now. My granddaughter, 12 years old, dropped over yesterday in the bathroom at school because she couldn't breathe and she passed out. Why couldn't she breathe? Because she's wearing that damn mask all day long. I'm not letting her go back. You know, I mean, these kids, they're killing our kids with these masks. Right. Kids are, human beings are not supposed to wear masks. You know, we don't get enough oxygen. She's not getting enough oxygen. She passed out. And I almost hit her head. She could have. She could have killed herself. Yeah, you know. And these kids in sports are wearing, having to wear masks. It's insanity. And you know, we have to stop it. We. You know, I guess I've heard seventeen states now have uh, gotten rid of their mask mandates as of today. I think. Um, but you know, all of them should get rid of their mask mandates. There's no reason. There's no science behind masks working. In fact, the CDC came out with one study showing that people are more likely to get COVID, the, the mask wearers are more likely to get COVID than those who are not wearing masks. But those facts are hidden and you will never see them on CNN. Right. The fake news media. Well, so, and I've been thinking a lot lately about, I mean, just how different from a decentralized perspective would this country have dealt with COVID, uh, you know, community by community, because this this whole COVID pandemic has, from the very get-go, been completely centralized in the hands of a few people at the CDC and in government. Right. And then all of the, you know, decisions that are being made about the treatment protocols and and how we're dealing with it. I mean, they all come from this handful of people at the top all the way through the vaccine rollout, which has all been paid for by the federal government. The federal government's been paying the states and the hospitals for COVID cases and I mean, just, you know, 
just how skewed has everything been because of this this highly centralized response as opposed to going back to these ideas uh, from the association and from de Tocqueville of having a highly decentralized response where communities are allowed to choose for themselves how to deal with these crises as they as they come up. Just well, there is no question that we can have paradise on the, in this country, uh, but we need to go back to those principles of assemblies and associations, and we need to get rid of the. We ninety eight percent of the federal government should just be eliminated. Mm-hmm. We don't need it. We look. We've got enough government in our states and our towns and our cities and our counties. We don't need the federal government to do anything for us except organize the military, maybe a little bit of a state department and a treasury department. And that's it. You know, everything else should go away. Just go away. We don't. I mean, things like a Department of Education. I mean, the Department of Education has destroyed education in this country. Mm-hmm. Before, I mean, I grew up in the fifties. I'm 71. I remember what it was like. There was no concept whatsoever that we would ever have the federal government involved in our education. Right. We didn't have the state government. It was all the PTA, Parent Teachers Association, and the school board in your community. No one else anywhere else had any influence on the schools in your community except for those people. And that was, and the parents were very involved, and uh, teachers are very involved. And you know, it was great. Our, we were by far number one in everything, math, science, everything in the world. Well, it's, you know, it's actually, when you talk about education, what really scares me about the centralization of education is that everybody learns the same thing. So it's like we're producing millions and millions of automatons that all know the same thing. It's the exact opposite of having diversity in our society where people learn a lot of different things, communities, you know, choose and individuals choose what they want to learn and what they think is helpful for them to learn. And, you know, and then you have this complete variety of understanding about the world and thinking about the world and knowledge about things like history and political philosophy, you know, and instead they're being taught, they're being taught a perversion of history. Mm -hmm, And like, like you said, like Thomas Jefferson was horrible because he owned slaves. Now that's just, you know, it's just nonsense. But, you know, you, you can't talk to people who have been brainwashed their whole life in all their schools. And they've, you know, read all these horrible books that are just not true about yeah. the founders and what they were really about. Um, you know, so you got to have the, to- the total truth. I mean, w- was it horrible what we did with the Indians? Yes. But they weren't, that wasn't the founding principles weren't at work there. That was the centralizers. And so, you know, we, we've got to, Put the centralizers. Uh, we got to have a structure like we had, you know, when we were back to the association and the Articles of Confederation, where the federal government couldn't influence, have the influence that it's having on us today. So it's a bottom-up structure that we need to go back to. So. Uh, that's what's so interesting to me about the way that people are taught about the history. I mean, these what you're talking about, what you're discussing with the concept of the association, with this idea of freedom of association, and then uh, versus this centralizing force. Uh, and people don't realize that the the these these people that were arguing for freedom in 1774 were fighting the 
the centralizers, the corporations, the governments, the force, the feudal governments, the forces of colonization. So many right. people believe that, oh, it was that those people that believe in laissez-faire capitalism that were doing the capitalism or that were doing the colonialism, that were doing the genocide, that were doing the slavery. And right. it's like, no, the people that were advocating for decentralization wanted individual rights for all people, yep. no matter what the color of their skin was, you know? Right. Um, I just think, don't you think that this knowledge that came out today that I didn't even know either until within the last couple of years, that in 1774, they ended the importation of slaves. Right. Well, it is, it is shocking for my, nobody caught that. Yeah. I've studied that history pretty extensively and I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. The association is like a forgotten part of history. It's not talked about. Mm-hmm. And it's so powerful because really, if we had something between the association with association, basically the concept of the association was to give each community the right to determine what they were going to do in their communities. And so that principle should be the overriding principle of any central centralization that we have. And then there were some things in the Articles of, of Confederation that were important to have, you know, a common defense. Um, you know, uh, com- you know, a common uh, financial unit, uh, and a few other things, but that was it. And freedom to travel between the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, no state would start a war with another nation. That we would all agree if we we're going to go to war with another nation. And the the Articles of Confederation was an amazing document. Now, uh, I have one more book I want to mention, and then uh, we probably should wrap this up. But um, there was a concerted effort among the centralizers throughout the 1780s, okay, after we won the Revolutionary War, to get rid of the Articles of Confederation because the centralized centralizers wanted more power. They wanted a more powerful centralized government. So they did a very a stealth campaign. It reminds me of CNN today and all the fake news channels that have an agenda. And that agenda was to discredit the Articles of Confederation, that it wasn't strong enough to defend us. Mm-hmm. And they used fear, just like they're using fear now of the pandemic. They're using fear to allow themselves to have more control over people's lives, make them wear masks and stand six feet apart and all this nonsense. And what they did is they used fear fear of the threat of England and Spain coming and attacking us to uh, to say that we needed another another convention to amend the Articles of Confederation. If they had admitted that their intent was to create a new form of government, the people would have never allowed their delegates to go to Philadelphia. You have to understand that. They would have never allowed it. So they thought that they were going to go and make a few changes in the articles that needed to be made so that we could pay our bills. And instead, the day that it was started, they locked the doors, closed the windows, and didn't let anybody know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And that's when Patrick Henry said, I smell a rat. And he was right. And they had the intention, Alexander Hamilton's intention for the 12 years previous to that, was to uh, destroy the Articles of Confederation or replace it with a more centralized government, more powerful 
centralized government. So that's the truth. And I just want you, your readers to know that. And if they read a PDF that I will send to you that you can send to any of your readers, I don't have it online yet. Uh, I will, but I'll send that PDF out to anyone at once. And it's a 50-page uh, white paper by a fellow by the name of Ralph Borzewski, who's done more research on what was going on there with the Articles of Confederation uh, and at that first, at the Constitutional Convention in 1777, 78, 79, um, then, it, you, you know, it's just an amazing piece of work. Well, before I let you go out there, I got a couple more points that I'd like to make, okay. I think, if you have the time. And, Absolutely. Okay, great. Um, oh, wait a minute. 415? Um, already, I already missed my 415. Never mind. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I, I knew this would happen. I meant to tell you that I had a 415. That's all right. Go ahead. Okay. It's fine. I guess we're good to go then. <laughs> yeah. We're good to go. <laughs> go. All right. Um well, I just, uh, when you start talking about the associations, I remember even learning, um, my, I used to get this little pamphlet called The Free Man when I oh, was yeah. in high school uh, right. from the Foundation for an Economic Education, which is still around. Um, and I remember the articles that I would read about the friendly societies from the 20s and 30s. I think this is another misconception about quote unquote capitalism, always wanting to centralize power because um, you know, again, we're talking about decentralizing power, right? And we, and there were, as you described, as de Tocqueville described, even back 1800, there were uh, all of these associations as late. I think you're correct in saying that, uh, after the civil war, there were less and less, but even in the twenties and thirties, there were organization groups of people that would get together. Right. They would hire one doctor who would cut them a deal and, you know, right. the doctor would be able to provide health care for the group. And it hasn't disappeared completely, but it's not anything like it used to be. That's well, it. you know, and this is my point. Then the centralizers came in and said, Hey, you know, we can't have this. <laughs> we, yeah. need, we need to centralize everything. And they started using the power of government to create these massive insurance corporations. And, right. you know, so many people, you even talked about like the difference in education in the 1950s. What about the difference in healthcare in the sure. 1950s when it was so decentralized and so inexpensive and yet uh, probably the best, you know, among the best healthcare in the world uh, as compared if to- If I needed health. a shot of penicillin, Dr. Rudolph would come to my house. Right. Come to my house and give me a shot. I mean, that's how, how much cheaper it was. Uh, you know, a lower middle class. My father was a detective and my mother was a nurse. I mean, we were, you know, middle class, lower middle class income. Mm -hmm. And we could afford to have a doctor come to our house. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing what we've seen uh, in the last 50 years where now, you know, we have among the worst healthcare in the developed nations and the most expensive. And we've seen it consistently as more centralization has occurred, especially the insurance business. You know, now a friendly society is illegal. You've got to pay ridiculous amounts of money for insurance because if you break your arm or worse, you know, you get into a car accident, if you need some serious surgeries, man, the cost, or you get cancer, you know, tens and, and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, these treatments cost. It's just outrageous. The more centralized things become, the more expensive they become and the worse the service will be. Right. The worse the product will be. And that's the way it is. 
and the more wealth inequality. I mean, that's just, it's, that's right. it, it so blows my mind that as government has become more centralized, there's been more wealth inequality. And then people look at the wealth inequality, go, oh, it must be the free market's fault. We need more government to stop this from happening. And then they get more government and then there's more wealth inequality. It's like they won't give up on the idea of government, no matter how much wealth inequality is created out of this, <laughs> you know? Well, well, guess why? It's because the government runs our schools. Right. That's what they preach. Yeah. Yeah. The government does everything. Government is our savior. And uh, it's just the opposite. So, you know, we need, just need an education. I mean, I, I have, the, you know, they, they say that there's, there's, I think Winston Churchill was the one who said this. He said, if you're not a socialist when you're you know, in your 20s, you know, then you don't have a heart. If you're not a conservative when you're in your 30s, you have no head. You don't have no brain. And right. what I would add to that is if you're not a libertarian when you're in your 40s, you're not evolving. Yeah. So, I mean, really, I mean, if, if you really are figuring out, trying to figure out, which I have my whole life, how this all works, you just become aware that the more government you have, the less freedom you're going to have, the less prosperity you're going to have, the less growth you're going to have, the, the less evolution of the people. You know, because, you know, people, you know, don't need to be told what to do. People need to be able to use their free will to develop and evolve. That's how our creator designed us. Right. Well, sounds like a plan, Clyde. Thanks for coming on the show. Do you want to give people uh, where they can find out more about your stuff? So my website, my main website is commonsenserevisited.com. Okay, the, the uh, summit that I'm putting on is with a company called 360 Summits. That's 360 Summits, S-U-M-M-I-T-S dot com, summit, 360summits.com. They're my partner in this virtual summit I'm doing. You want to let people know a little bit about that? Yeah, so they've been doing virtual summits for 10 years. Uh, they're a big company. They really know what they're doing. There's probably no one better in that industry than them. And uh, we're partnering with, right now. We're creating a summit with, that will have 45 different speakers. I just interviewed Tom Woods yesterday. I'm interviewing Foster Gamble next week, uh, and to Sheriff Richard Mack, and uh, the guy who wrote American Secession, Professor Buckley, and many, many more. I'm going to have Ty Bollinger, and have all kinds of people. And uh, it'll be a virtual summit. It'll go live in June, and uh, you'll be able to watch, you know, 45 incredible speakers you know, that I've interviewed and cool. um, it'd be really neat. Yeah. So I invite you to do that. Very and, good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. As always, it's wonderful. You made me lose with my appointment at 4.15. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all right. I'll, I'll let you go. He'll I... understand. It's my partner at 360 Summits. He'll understand. Cool. Yeah. Well, we're spreading the word. So uh, I'll just uh, I'll just let people know that you've been listening to The Shift, and I'm your host, Doug McCanty. You can find my stuff at theshiftnow.com. Uh, please think about signing up for the newsletter, then I'll keep you informed uh, about all the new stuff that I'm producing and coming out with. 
Um, you can also find me on Facebook. Uh, just uh, I'm really going through, <laughs> as we discussed a little bit about the shadow banning, uh, you can just go to my personal page, Doug McKenty. That's where mm -hmm. I'm getting most of my action and uh, or at the shift uh, on YouTube, although also the shift on brand new tube now. Um, and I am going to get yourself on BitChute, I hope, pretty soon. I am on BitChute. Like I said, I'm having a hard time with the processing, so I'm not getting a lot. I can't. I, I tried to get my stuff up there. It takes hours for it to upload and then it doesn't process. And so it's kind of frustrating. I've had more luck with brand new tube. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at D McKenty, but now I'm moving on to Mastodon at D McKenty as well, um, trying to trying out new things. So I'm also on Gab and Parlor and and uh, Float and Minds and quite a few other platforms. I'm trying to see what'll bite. Um, also, the shift with Doug McKenty on Telegram, which is uh, seems to be like um, a pretty fun format. Yeah, Telegram is something I can actually use. Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. yeah. And it's not bad. I mean, you can still really get a lot of, you know, you can post whatever you want and you get a lot of back and forth communication with the people who are following you. So I'm going to start using that more for sure. Um, it seems like it's going to be maybe a platform for the future. It's a little bit simpler to work with. It doesn't quite have all the features, but it really gets the job done in terms of that, that basic communication, that, that public forum that you want to be able to have without, without the censorship and the shadow banning. So, so it's okay. cool. Fantastic. Very okay. good. Very good. Thank you very much. Stay Thanks. on for a second. I want to talk to you just a second. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Will do. Well, I'll just uh, I'll just say goodbye to my audience. Thanks for listening, and uh, thank you, Clyde, for coming on the show. We'll uh, we'll uh, definitely keep in touch, and uh, uh, you know, let's keep in touch about the summit, and you know, throw me some people that you're going to interview that you're going to showcase at the summit. I'll do an interview and and just help to promote it that way. So, um, you know, we'll keep it rolling here, and hopefully. Hopefully more people will be listening to what we got to say. All right, you guys have a great day. Thanks again. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was the 72nd episode of The Shift. Happy to talk with Clyde Cleveland again. Uh, I did uh, an interview with him that I just considered an exclusive. It was kind of a shorter interview. I gave the whole thing away for free uh, uh, around episode 56, 55 in there. Uh, you can find it on the website. Uh, and we discussed uh, his work uh, trying to organize the constitutional sheriffs to get together to uh, not enforce some of these lockdown policies. Uh, but I wanted to have Clyde back. I've actually known him for quite some time. I even did an interview with him, oh, 10 years ago or so uh, for the Thursday Morning Report. That's also under the free content tab at theshiftnow.com. If you want to check that one out, that one's specifically about Common Sense Revisited. Um, but I've always liked talking with him. He is just that libertarian activist that really represents that point of view and he's been active in the party ran for governor of Iowa in 2002 for a long long time and he's a really big history buff when it comes to that this part of American history this this revolutionary part of American history and uh, so when he wanted to come on and talk about Alexis de Tocqueville specifically uh, I thought it would be great just to continue the education part of this program where people can understand uh, some of this history, some of this uh, early history of the United States and the Constitution, because what's been going on really in the last 20 years, more so in the last 10 years, has been this push to brand the Founding Fathers as, as racists, 
uh, to brand the Constitution as this ancient document that really doesn't uh, have any application in the modern day. And I just am starting to get afraid that a lot of people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, certainly no one is advocating for a slave ownership, right? In fact, if you've seen some of my previous episodes, we've been discussing how uh, there's more people in prisons right now working essentially as slaves for corporations in the private prison system than there were uh, slaves before the Civil War. So the problem, I don't think, has even really gone away. <laughs> we still need to be uh, fighting fighting this um, these abrogations of our rights. Um, and that, again, going back to the baby out with the bathwater idea, I mean, that's just it. Uh, people aren't standing up against the censorship right now. Uh, a lot of people are advocating for censorship of people whose ideas are different than their own. Um, things like the First Amendment are just getting tossed out the window. These lockdowns uh, have tossed out uh, the right of assembly. Nobody said a peep. We didn't even have a conversation. No one on any mainstream media network ever had an expert on to explain, well, you know, here's why the right of assembly was considered important uh, at one time. <laughs> you know, uh, they just kept telling you over and over again, my God, six feet distancing, wear your masks, uh, don't gather in groups, no more gathering in groups. Um, and uh, not even a, a little bit of a tidbit of a conversation about uh, taking away these fundamental rights, the right to worship, telling people they can't go to church on Sundays. Uh, I was just blown away uh, when so many Christians uh, just said, okay, sorry, you know, oh, singing might spread COVID, so uh, we can't have a choir, we can't go to church anymore. Uh, these are fundamental human rights that prevent tyrants, kings, feudal lords, uh, oligarchs, Gavin Newsom, you know, from taking over our states, and, and they protect our individual freedoms. They allow us to speak freely uh, so that uh, we can have diverse ideas, uh, that people are allowed to pick and choose the ideas, you know, from, from a wide variety of ideas that are all freely spoken. And now, of course, if you uh, are afraid of taking a, a vaccine that's in the third phase of, uh, of study, uh, then you might get uh, you might get censored or get something plastered over your post on Facebook or whatever it is, uh, and nobody's issuing a peep. If you just got to follow along with what the government says, I think a lot of this has to go back to the way these earlier ideas by the founding fathers, and then of course pre-founding fathers, which is what I discussed with Clyde. Uh, where they came from, why they evolved, and why they still pertain in this day and age if uh, we care about living healthy, thriving lives free of, uh, essentially free of dictatorship. Um, and there are a lot of good reasons for that. And so what was important about what Clyde is doing, because, you know, I have studied the American Revolution at the college level. I've studied the French Revolution. I read the political philosophy of the time, I had never even heard of this assembly movement. So it was fascinating to me to bear witness uh, to what he was describing to me as the earliest form of American Revolution, which was just all of these autonomous townships coming together in groups, controlling, you know, uh, city by city where they had autonomy at that city level. And then watching the process go through uh, as the revolution started, the standing army was created. Well, how do we pay for the standing army? Got to have a federal government. Then we have the Articles of Confederation. And really the stories behind the creation of the Constitution would blow your mind. Some of the stories that Clyde was talking about, Patrick Henry refused to go. Uh, to the Constitutional Congress because he knew it was a snow job to create a powerful federal government. 
uh, and dozens of people who showed up as it was happening, they they left and they refused to sign the document because it became more and more apparent that they were going to create this this uh, centralized uh, hierarchy, this system uh, that created a very powerful federal government. And we're taught that the Constitution, and that's just the thing, you know, we're taught that the Constitution is like this libertarian uh, ideal, uh, but in fact. Clyde wants to go back to the assembly, you know, and, and he wants to talk about the Articles of Confederation, and he wants to talk about uh, the decentralization of power, and how power being centralized, even as much as it was centralized in the Constitution, uh, is way too much. Uh, there are actually, we've all heard of, many of us have heard of the Federalist Papers, which argued for the Constitution, and we read Alexander Hamilton's uh, work and James Madison as they, as they explain, here's why we need this powerful federal government, but how many of you have read the Anti-Federalist Papers that were saying, hey, we disagree with the centralization of power? And the other thing that I really wanted to point out here, this conversation with Clyde, because, you know, again, now we're getting to this place where people who believe in the decentralization of power who are libertarian at heart are being called or considered racist if you promote the Constitution. Well, the, you know, the Constitution allowed racism, the three-fifths rule, and all of this. Well, thankfully, the Constitution was uh, amended. Again, none of us believe anything like that. Clyde certainly doesn't. And when you go back to this history of the Assembly, he's pointing out these guys were eliminating the slave trade at the time. There was a, a real vibrant argument and it was the ones who wanted to decentralize power that also wanted to eliminate slavery, right? There was a lot of talk. There's, uh, You guys should look up, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. She was a British. She's the mother of Mary Shelley, who wrote the Frankenstein novel. Uh, she wrote an, a book called Vindication of the Rights of Women. That came out, I believe, around 1790. So it was around the same time period, arguing vociferously for the woman's right to vote. We don't hear in this day and age that during that time period, the libertarians of the time were arguing against slavery, were arguing for uh, women's suffrage, and it was the centralizers, the Alexander Hamiltons, that wanted to create a powerful federal government, that wanted to have a central bank, that wanted to continue trading with the feudal lords of, of England, uh, right, that wanted to continue what ended eventually ended up becoming this corporate system that we see today, this complete centralization of power in, in the federal government and the corporate system working together now, uh, centralizing the means of production. Um, and so I think it's just really important that we go back and revisit this history and recognize that there's a lot more to it than what we're hearing in school and certainly what we're going to hear on the mainstream media, which has been promoting Alexander Hamilton through this uh, musical for the last couple of years. Oh, I, you know, I always thought he was one of those guys who centralized power, but the musical just says he was just this great guy. It's just incredible. Well, except he was all about centralizing power. He was all about central banking. He was all about uh, create or, or, or maintaining a lot of the feudal systems left over from Britain after the British Revolution. Uh, and it was guys like that that ended up winning out at the Constitutional Convention creating a constitution that clearly uh, provided enough loopholes for us to end up with the system that we have today. A huge standing army, right? Wasting a trillion dollars a year on whatever it is that the army does all over the world, certainly not defending our freedoms here in the United States. 
uh, <clears throat> and a federal government that, that spends uh, literally trillions and trillions of dollars with a central bank that controls the interest rates. I, I mean, you know, we can go on and on. I mean, how did this happen? It's, it's not at all what the vision of the assemblymen and women of the time in the 1770s had when they wanted to split away from Britain and create a very horizontal power structure where each township was, was very, very autonomous and only got together uh, when they agreed to work together uh, and in times of maybe national invasion or something like that. So, um, you know, I think it's important to, to really understand this history and to really understand the nuances of it because the way it all just kind of gets whitewashed, it all gets lumped over. And of course, uh, the oligarchs of today don't want us to know uh, about libertarian philosophy, about decentralizing power, about living in a voluntary or free society as they continue to consolidate power as they always have. A sense back in the 1770s <laughs> when they first uh, built the standing army to fight the British uh, and then of course moved on to the Constitution and uh, continued to, to use many of the loopholes in the Constitution to uh, to allow for the centralization uh, of power in the federal level and uh, and then access to all of that federal money those you know through uh, government largesse and through uh, legalized bribery in the form of lobbying uh, so that corporations can make uh, billions and billions of dollars based on just the uh, just the votes of a handful of people that they've paid tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, to vote to give them millions of dollars in government contracts and this is the system that we're left with today so uh, really happy to talk to Clyde I'll just give you guys his website again you can find out all about him at uh, www common sense revisited I, I it's worth it to read the pamphlet and learn about thomas paine who wrote the original common sense he was a very uh actually kind of a left-wing libertarian a socialist libertarian of the time very radical ended up going to france and helping out uh, with the french revolution which was more of a of a left-wing kind of uh, again libertarian socialist more even socialist in the in the french revolution um, but uh, Thomas Paine ended up going to France and working on that, and that is where Clyde gets his inspiration. So you can check out that pamphlet, and also this 360summits.org, where he's going to be having uh, a lot of people, a lot of people that I've even talked to are going to be uh, speakers at his uh, summit that he's putting together. I think there's going to be maybe 45, as many as 45 for this first one that he's putting on, including Catherine Austin Fitz and Foster Gamble. Uh, Ty Bollinger of The Truth About Cancer. Uh, so talking about a lot of different things uh, and kind of angling from this libertarian perspective. So if you want to learn more, then check out his work at uh, 360summit.org. Um, so hope you enjoyed the show. You can also catch The Shift, my program. Catch all of the episodes at www.theshiftnow.com. I'm urging a lot of people to go there. Uh, instead of these social media sites where, this, of course, the censorship and the shadow banning is an issue, uh, sign up for the newsletter. And then I'll just send you everything that I produce every week, uh, and you'll stay up to date. If you like uh, what you've been hearing coming out of the shift, then you'll like what you're getting. <laughs> then it'll be worth it to sign up for the newsletter, and that way you can stay on top of things. Uh, I'm also just started a new program also with George Roach. I'm doing the psychology of lockdown with him really been enjoying the psychology angle uh, you can find that at the website as well 
and uh, and uh, I, we just started doing a show specifically for his organization, the Line Canada or the Line International. Uh, this is a protest group that started in Canada to fight against the lockdowns. Now they're spreading internationally. They're in multiple countries, uh, really starting to gain some steam. Had a really big rally in Montreal last weekend. So congratulations to him. And this new show is called Behind the Line: The Facts and the Fiction. Uh, so stay tuned for that one. We just had the first one out last week with uh, Dr. Mark McDonald of America's Frontline Doctors, and we'll have uh, the next one coming up with uh, a lot of these frontline nurses that came out, have come out over the past year, uh, really uh, horrified, especially back in the day when it was straight to the ventilators for the COVID patients and ignoring uh, treatment protocols such as uh, hydroxychloroquine and, I and ivermectin that they knew were working. Uh, when they were used, and instead they kept getting told over and over again, you know, just put the patient on the ventilator, give them this remdesivir, even though it doesn't help very much, and and uh, they were seeing a lot of people die. So that'll be a really good conversation from from frontline workers who, uh, uh, you know, eyewitness to a lot of these events that were very upsetting for them. Um, so again, check it out at www.theshiftnow.com. I'm on Facebook. My personal page has kind of turned into the shift page. I think the shadow banning was really preventing the shift page from getting out anywhere. I couldn't get anybody on it. I finally started just friending people on my personal page, and it's turned into the shift page. So you can look me up at Doug McKenty on Facebook. I'm also at The Shift with Doug McKenty on Facebook if you want to try that one, uh, at D. McKenty on Twitter and Mastodon now. And uh, if you look up The Shift with Doug McKenty on uh, Gab or Minds, I'm on the Truth Network, uh, and uh, I've been branching out. I'm on, I have a Telegram channel, which I need to put up on the website. I will try to do that this week, and I um, would like to start using that more because that forum uh, seems to work really well in terms of back and forth. I can post a bunch of articles and get some ideas from you guys as to who you want to see uh, being interviewed. So um, thanks for listening to this one. And uh, I'll be back next week. I am talking with Alexandria Russell from an organization called the Guardian Alliance. And uh, she, we're going to talk about real solutions here. Uh, she, the Guardian Alliance is working on this kind of training program that really amalgamates um, different ideas from different cultures from around the world, indigenous cultures, Hindu cultures, Taoism, uh, sacred geometry, formulates them all together into this uh, this, this way of, of really strengthening your internal energy field um, and uh, dealing with psychology sort of one chakra at a time as it analyzes. Uh, you can analyze yourself. You can go through the process. It's not very expensive. They keep it on a, a sliding scale. And uh, so stay tuned for that. That'll be coming up next week. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I know I did. And uh, we'll keep on keeping on. Thanks again. Take care, everybody.